difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Scott Tobias. Genevieve Kosky. And Tasha Robinson. Here in The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're going to look at two Spike Lee films revisiting two chapters in 20th century history and starring two different members of the Washington family. Tasha, what can you tell us about the pairing we'll be discussing? Well, first, we'll be taking a look at a movie that was decades in the making and that almost didn't get finished. Released in late 1992, Spike Lee's Malcolm X brought Alex Haley's The Autobiography of Malcolm X to the big screen. Starring Denzel Washington, it was a film many others had tried to make and one Lee had to fight to make and finish his way. Epic in length and scope, it spans the years between Malcolm X's youth as a hustler in wartime Boston and Harlem, through his imprisonment, religious conversion, ascent as a representative of the Nation of Islam, and assassination in 1965 at the age of 39. Spoilers, Keith. Then we'll discuss Lee's latest, Black Klansman, starring Denzel Washington's son, John David Washington, in the fact-based story of Ron Stallworth, the first black detective in the Colorado Springs Police Department, whose phone call to the local Ku Klux Klan led to him becoming a member of the organization, sort of, in the 1970s. Together, they cover nearly a half century of history. But not to tip our hand too much about what they have in common, they both double as urgent calls to look to the past to understand the present. We'll dig into Malcolm X after the break. You don't even know who you are. Who are you? Say, Roseland. Roseland. He was a pusher, a hustler, a thief. You ready to tackle the streets? Yeah, I'm ready. Let him come. <laughs> he was loved, respected, convicted. Say your number, little. I forgot it. In a dream that's divine. He was a prisoner who set himself free. A Muslim must be strikingly upright. I will not touch the white man's drugs, his liquor, his women. So that those in the darkness can see the power of the light. I will not lie, cheat, or steal. I believe you... He was a follower who became a leader. You're not an American. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. He brought honor to disobedience. I suggest you look outside that window. You've been laying down and bowing down for 400 years. I think it's time to stand up. All right, break it up. You got what you wanted. Now, I'm not satisfied. That's too much power for one man to have. And a voice to a people who longed to be heard. Defend Hoodwink! Dan Boozer! Let us stray! You're saying you're anti-white? No, you're saying I'm anti-white. I'm sorry, Betty. I haven't been the best husband. I love you. You advocate violence? No, sir. Academy Award 
Award winner Denzel Washington's most electrifying performance. Director Spike Lee's most powerful film. Malcolm, can we all live together? I sincerely hope so. We could dedicate this whole podcast to the difficulty Spike Lee and others before him had in getting Malcolm X made, but let's just briefly consider the last hurdle Lee faced. After struggling with Warner Brothers about how much money he needed to realize his vision and using part of his salary to boost the budget, Lee grappled with the film's completion bond company in post-production, which forced the film to be shut down during the editing process. Lee'd spent enough, they determined, and not only offered him no more money, but demanded the film clock in at no more than two hours and 15 minutes. Lee disagreed. And to complete the film on his own terms, he reached out to luminaries like Oprah Winfrey, Prince, Janet Jackson, and others for help. This, by his thinking, was an important story that needed to be told without compromise by a black filmmaker who could tell it right. And if that meant reaching out to others to stage an act of defiance, so be it. He won. And so we have the Malcolm X we know, a sprawling account of the civil rights leader's life from its criminal beginnings to its premature end. It runs a chunk over three hours and unfolds on a scale that up to that point had never been dedicated to the biopic of an African-American. It's filled with meticulously recreated scenes from every phase of Malcolm X's life, and it even became the first American narrative film to be allowed to shoot at Mecca. All this makes sense for several reasons. Malcolm X's life had an epic sweep, one deserving of the same expansive treatment given to other biopics of notable leaders. Lee also needs the film's deliberate pace. This is the story of one man's spiritual and intellectual evolution, showing that takes time. Anyone with a purely pragmatic mindset, say a completion bond company hoping to slot the film into five showings a day instead of three, might look to the film's many speeches as a place to cut. But removing them would take the heart out of the movie. Malcolm X's oratories and the changes he introduced to them don't detract from the story. They tell the story. This is a man who never wanted to be misunderstood. He deserved a film that took that seriously. He also deserved an actor capable of suggesting the complexities of his character, even when he doesn't speak. At the center of Lee's 1989 masterpiece, Do the Right Thing, there's a picture of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. In the middle of this film, there's a remarkable sequence featuring a speech in which Malcolm X speaks out against King in the ugliest possible terms. Lee lays it under images of Washington watching scenes from the civil rights struggle in which those committed to King's nonviolent approach meet violent opposition. Does he feel the images confirm his beliefs that King's approach is foolish? Is his mind changing? The expression on Washington's face doesn't say, but it's the look of a person who's always processing and thinking. The moment forces us to consider the things he's saying and what's led him to say them in ways that the words alone can't quite convey. The scene's all the more notable because of how sharply it differs from the Malcolm X we meet in the film's early scenes. The flashily dressed Detroit Red, who with his pal Shorty, played by Lee, roams the streets and dance halls of Boston looking for easy money and easy women. Lee brings a vibrant kick to these early scenes that carries through as Red gets deeper into crime, first as a numbers runner in Harlem, then as a coke-addicted thief in Boston. Before it's anything else, Lee's Malcolm X is a crackerjack street-level period crime film, but it keeps going. After Red's arrested and sent to prison, he meets an older prisoner named Baines, played by Albert Hall, who introduces him to the teachings of Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam and prods him to educate himself and re-examine everything he thought he knew, even to the level of language. In one of the film's most powerful moments, Baines informs Red that Elijah Muhammad teaches that all white men are devils and asks if he's ever met one who wasn't evil, a query that leads to flashes of his life up to that moment. The point isn't whether Baines and Muhammad are right or wrong, but whether or not anything in experiences of the man soon to be known as Malcolm X contradicts that assertion. 
Lee's refusal to tell viewers what to think continues throughout the film, as Malcolm X comes to fame, marries the future of Betty Shabazz, played by Angela Bassett, and breaks with the Nation of Islam, disappointed and betrayed. It treats Malcolm X as a man worthy of admiration, but it never pins him down to a particular moment. This is a story becoming of someone whose experiences and thought took him places far removed from where he began, but tightly tied him to that origin. And in many ways, it's an unfinished story, ending on an unresolved note whose echoes Lee's film makes impossible not to hear today. I must emphasize at the outstart that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is not a politician. That's right. So I'm not here this afternoon as a Republican, nor as a Democrat. Not as a Mason, nor as an Elk. Not as a Protestant, nor a Catholic. Not as a Christian, nor a Jew. Not as a Baptist, nor a Methodist. In fact, not even as an American. Because if I was an American, the problem that confronts our people today wouldn't even exist. So I have to stand here today as what I was when I was born. A black man. All right, everyone, what is your history with this film? Uh, Scott and Tosh and I are old. So we, I think we all saw it in the theater. Genevieve, you, you, I'm guessing you probably did not. But, no, uh, yeah, I was nine when this film okay. came out. And like, I'm just going to plead ignorance here. This is my first time seeing Malcolm X. And I think that's because I was so young when it came out, but not so young that in the years following it, I wasn't like kind of aware of the conversation around it, the prestige around it, sort of the controversy slash around it at the time and i think that combined with it being an almost three and a half hour movie like in my head over time it just built up to being this really unapproachable film for, yeah. for a lot of reasons and i'm not a big lee aficionado anyway so like there was just it was never some uh, kind of a hole in my viewing experience i felt like particularly compelled to fill until this podcast and we've already kind of discussed this a little off mic like it was such an i don't want to say an easier watch than than i was expecting but a much more compelling watch like it's a very easy film to just kind of fall into the story and like it's a long film i was kind of expecting to maybe have to take a break during it but it just i don't want to say it flew by but it definitely like it was not nearly the kind of i guess the burden i had built it up to be in my head no it really flows like i saw this film when it came out and i think a couple of times actually uh i liked it a lot but i mean i think i was much less sophisticated in terms of you know what filmmaking was and the craft of it it's like boy, I, I didn't even realize how, you know, he just goes all out with this. I mean, this is from mm-hmm. that opening track, tracking shot on, which is like a crane shot that turns into a steady cam shot mm-hmm. uh, through like those those dancing sequences. And, and we'll get into it more, but the way he stages the speeches. So there, there's a narrative to those scenes as well. I mean, this is just exemplary filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, I, I love it. And I've come to think of it as one of his very best, like this and Do the Right Thing, 25th Hour. That's sort of the upper echelon of Spike Lee movies for me. But it didn't really start that way when I saw it in 1992. I mean, I did admire at the time, but my thought then was like, well, he's making a biopic here and he's doing it in a pretty straightforward way. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not the Spike Lee I was used to, who is somebody who likes to provoke and do a lot of pretty wild things, unexpected things. I mean, this was a pretty straightforward, you know, not quite birth to death, but close enough biopic of the type that I generally don't like. But over the years, and certainly when I saw it on this viewing, I just appreciated just the absolute focus in this movie. I think he really cared about getting everything right. I mean, the stakes could not have been higher. I mean, the people 
examining this film, there was going to be such intense controversy and intense scrutiny of the film that I think that he rose to the occasion and made a film that might be perceived as too conservative in style, but in fact, you know, opens with the Rodney King beating the American flag, turning into an X. So, I mean, it wasn't that timid either. So I feel like he strikes us this perfect balance between making this very provocative, thoughtful truly audacious film but also doing something that anyone could see and appreciate and and engage with and and i I felt that way of the book as well the book is just so absorbing and gives you such a fuller sense of the man than than you could have ever known otherwise so uh i love it a little bit of context and i'm not skipping you tasha but just you know we talked about how the problem with he had with completing the film just getting the film was a fight as well i mean this was supposed to be directed by norman jewison and <laughs> lee just sort of like through force of will i mean went in and talked his way into said i should be directing this it should be a black director and it should be me and jewison stepped aside and and then i mean you kind of put it all on the line professionally just with that move alone but then also to go over budget repeatedly <laughs> and and you know the stakes could not have been higher for this and i remember also there was a long lead up to this one like i mean lee is among other things a pretty good self-promoter like the, the x caps were just everywhere in the summer leading up to this this film's release but tasha you saw this in the theaters when it yeah came out? i saw it in the theaters too i mean you talk about being maybe too young to appreciate the sophistication of the filmmaking i think i was too young to appreciate uh, the sophistication of the politics mm-hmm. um and i remember seeing this film and just thinking you know it's it's so so didactic it's so it's so offensive like why can't we all just get along <laughs> not to not to let's quote running king <laughs> right that's a running king what? quote right why can't we what, all what? somebody said that before i thought i invented that scott <laughs> all right go ahead all right i've got to shelve my plans to make t-shirts um when i first watched it i didn't have I hadn't really grown into respect for uh, Spike Lee as a filmmaker. I was familiar with his his previous films as these kind of like I just I felt that he was very self indulgent. Um, he had a habit of inserting himself into his films. He had a habit of uh, taking these strange little like byways off into dance sequences or uh, comedy sequences or speeches to the camera, like all of these little grace notes that were not how I was used to seeing film, and that just struck me as as weird and strange and out of place. And I feel like the more films, both the more films of his that I've seen and just the more films I've seen, the more I've become capable of like understanding the sophistication and the complexity of what he's doing, but also just the daring of it, you know, the audacity of some of the stuff that he gets in- into. And here, I mean, among other things, just the use of light in this film is so amazing and meticulous and thought through. But also, you know, daring and out there and and strange in some ways. And in the same sort of way, it's like it's not a compromising movie. Uh, It's especially not a compromising movie for a broad audience. A lot of people are saying about his new film, Black Klansman, that it's black history for a white audience. I don't think that, first of all, I I don't think that assessment is right. But second of all, I don't feel like this is compromised or watered down or or made easy for any audience. I think it's a fascinating film because it's so confrontational and it's so true to some of the extremes of the things that uh, Malcolm X said. And just in, in that, it feels daring and audacious in the same kind of way. But the thing I appreciate about the film and what makes it, I think, palatable for anybody, too, is that it's so well articulated just in terms of just really understanding where his head was at in all of these moments in his life and how he was able to become enlightened and evolved and then question himself and then end up in the place he ends up. It's just, 
at every moment as an audience member, and this is again true of the book as well, you understand him. And I think that people entering into this film, most, the vast majority of people watching this film, would probably be quite surprised by how rich a character and rich a human being Malcolm X turns out to be. Well, but, I mean, I think Keith got it exactly right when he talked about it being not about what you think about his politics or his worldview, but about where it came from and what it meant to him. I keep thinking about Amadeus, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. I don't know anything about Mozart, and I don't know enough about or appreciate classical music enough, you know, to sit down and listen to Mozart and enjoy it. But that movie is so well made to communicate the importance of his music to Salieri and and the emotional impact of his music on Salieri. This movie, to me, communicates the impact of religion on a specific person's life and how he came to it and what it meant to him to a degree that you'd like you don't have to share any of his beliefs, not just about racial relationships, but about religion itself to understand who he is and why it was so important to him. And there's really, I mean, it's, as far as that's concerned, I mean, there's no more moving scene in any of Spike Lee's movies than Malcolm meeting uh, Elijah Muhammad for the first time. It's a crushing scene over and over again. Yeah, and then then we find out, you know, he's not who he thought he was, but in that moment, he's who he needs him to be. Yeah, no. No, It's just like his, uh, it's taken him so long to get to this place, and it's just, it's it's something else. The little details of that scene, just the way, without saying anything about it, he hunches over to be the same height is Elijah mm-hmm. Muhammad, even though like he's a very tall man next to him, and he's just like you know this this man who had to fight with himself to get on his knees in private to his God is like turning his entire body into a question mark, trying to get his head down to the the same level as the man he's addressing, and it's just his posture in that that shot says so much. And it also speaks in terms of the entire film this central contradiction to him too, where he's capable of living with humility and discipline but also capable of, of demagoguery and egotism as well and kind of trying to sort out those uh sides of him is very interesting they don't they seem in conflict but they're very much they make sense again the film makes sense of seemingly contradictory aspects of his personality you know in telling the story of the sort of the evolution of malcolm x and him sort of finding himself and continuing to evolve once he's found himself like sort of the through line in both what the narrative chooses to focus on and in Denzel Washington's performance is that sort of innate magnetism, the way that people are drawn to him and him learning to, through the use of words. And like, I I love the scene of him sitting down at the dictionary and like harnessing the power of language, learning to harness the power of language. And it's just, it's a tool that allows him to focus this power he has and that he put toward different ends in the earlier part of his life. I mean, I think that that charisma is a strong part of it. But I think that Spike Lee also makes a point of he like he was always just a very intense person. Mm. Um, The scene where he is alone with his white lover and he orders her to kiss his feet and feed him. And he's just like glaring at her the entire time. Like there's an intensity in that scene that has nothing to do with chemistry that has to do with just the force of his anger and the force of his will and the force of his conviction that what he's feeling and thinking in that scene is important. And I think you see the same thing in the scene where he's sitting around planning crimes with his friends and he, he pulls the gun and he pulls the whole business with a Russian roulette. There's just always an intensity that goes beyond confidence and into just like 
full committal to whatever it is he's doing. Yeah, yeah charisma is maybe has like too many positive connotations mm-hmm. for what I am talking about. But yeah, I guess it's just that intensity is just part of the magnetism where he becomes, I mean, obviously he's the center of this story, but through that performance, you get the sense of a man who is always the center of whatever interaction he is part of. We should talk about the performance a little bit. I mean, it's a tough thing to pull off. You know, the character's very young when it starts and, and he's not, you know, he's well younger than I am now, but, but, but um, you know, a 39-year-old man at the end, just the aging alone, the maturity, maturity of it, but to trace like every step of his spiritual journey along the way that's that's not an easy thing to pull off and i think i think washington you know this is not a controversial opinion but i think washington's really <laughs> great he's good movie. he's a good one <laughs> and, and it's also nominated for best actor lost to al pacino and several women like all respect to al pacino but to, for this performance yeah. to lose to that performance that's all time really. that's all time bad i mean this yeah is, i mean especially if you, if you watch this perf- if that you watch malcolm terrible. x i mean like i mean we're, we're even if you can see that pacino is fine in that movie it's just I'm this, not conceding this, this that. Performance is, this is an unbelievably great performance. I mean, like... Son of a Woman was straight up an award for most acting. <laughs> like, most who, acting uh, and loudest well, acting. Well, I, th- I thought there was a make, it was a makeup re- award for something else, right? At that for point? career, basically? I mean, yeah, basically for never winning before, okay. I guess. But, like, you know... That was strange. But, yeah, yeah that was... It's absolutely absurd that Denzel Washington did not win for this performance. It's, yeah. It's, he really does get at all aspects of a personality and follows that journey and makes you completely convinced of his emotions at every step along the way i mean anyway what do you what do you think i'm sorry i'm I'm babbling (laughs) oh no um just in doing some research for this episode and i i read a a new york times profile of denzel washington from 1992 during the filming of malcolm x and it talks a little about sort of like the dubiousness with which this casting was greeted because like this was denzel washington and peak like people's most beautiful people issue you you know um and some people were upset that he didn't really look enough like malcolm x and i guess it was also sort of tied in with concerns about lee doing the film as well because we we talked a little bit about sort of lee agitating to take the film over from a white director but then once he had the film i guess there was some concern that lee would like himself make it too palatable for a middle-class white audience um it's a weird Concern with Lee yeah. because yeah, like, he, he, sure. he really yeah. couldn't. He really couldn't win. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. Well, he, 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 there, there was a the poet Amiri Baraka sure. who warned the director against diluting the anger of Malcolm's story and making it more palatable to whites and middle class blacks. And I, I guess the concerns about Denzel Washington were maybe sort of folded into that concern of him being this very pretty man. That's and, weird though, know. because like I mean, at this point. You know, his big breakthrough was A Soldier Story with Norman Jewison. He had been nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Cry Freedom. He won for Glory. He'd been in Mo Better Blues and Mississippi Masala recently. Mm-hmm. It's not like he was doing lightweight stuff, yeah. you know? I, I, I think the lesson here is that pre-release anger over films that people haven't seen is eternal. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, that's a very good that's point. True. But not as, so but not as widespread as it. That we, don't have, we don't have like a mechanism for that to circulate, that anger to circulate. I mean, here it is in the New York Times. Just some, <laughs> yeah, just different forms, but although I think in a, in a you know, slower motion than, than yeah, <laughs> it was, it was very now. ignorable at the time. <laughs> I think there's also just a degree to which the demand that movie stars be attractive and yet the mm-hmm. contempt that we have for the intellect of attractive people mm-hmm. is also eternal. There might also be some uh, racism involved what? in all this. Oh, I, I said racism. <laughs> racism. Uh, maybe. Maybe a little. Yeah. I mean, and there was still at this point 
a tremendous amount of like fear of what Spike Lee could do sure. based on mm-hmm. do the right thing, which some uh, white critics uh, thought felt was going to be incitement to to riot. Uh, those are good good times, but um, no one man should have that much power. <laughs> I was I was I, telling, I made that up too. I, that's I'm making a t-shirt. That's a good one. Yeah. I was telling I was telling uh, before we started recording. I was, I was saying I, ha- I have the DVD of of Malcolm X, which splits into two halves because the film is too long, and the first half ends with that line, which is really the only sort of cl- real clunky line in the whole movie. Yeah, I mean, what? I was saying the, the as I said before though, it was it it reads like a clunkily written line, but it's actually that's a verbatim from. Something a, a cop actually said to a reporter at the time. Okay. After the scene, uh, pretty much played out that way in real life. Yeah. Like he he really did just make a hand gesture, and that uh, crowd broke up and moved off. Is it, like, Pe- is it Peter Boyle we need to blame for this? Yeah. <laughs> I hate to blame Peter Boyle for anything. I you know I that line isn't clunky to me because okay. the scene is so powerful. Oh, the I scene's mean, amazing. It's actually kind of terrifying, like how small that gesture is and how responsive everybody is to it. And uh, like I'm, I'm kind of there with them. I'm not sure one man should have that much power, unless it's being put to this kind of use where it's really needed. Yeah, it's extraordinary to watch it unfold and just to see like what organization means. You know, just like of that level of discipline is so. You know, you, you think you think of movements as being so messy. To see a scene play out like that, where it's where it's all extraordinarily choreographed and thought through um it's a different level of power but but what's so striking about that scene to me is that you have like the lines of this very regimented brotherhood marching but then they accrue this mass of people as, as they and when they arrive at the station this roiling mass of people is behind this unified front line it feels like a visualization of the the power that is at work here of having this very distinctive organized front that draws this you know more chaotic and uh dangerous power behind it oh yeah and i mean just visually what it says is we have the mob behind us backing us but on the other hand we're the only thing standing between you and the mob yeah for sure so there are two basic approaches to doing a biopic and one is to follow subject from cradle to grave which is mm, this one doesn't quite do but it but comes close to it another is is choosing a key period a sort of an illustrative phase of that subject's life you know, like, like I said, Malcolm X kind of hues closer to the first and the second. Does that approach work here? And what are the benefits of it? Oh, gosh. I think it works so much better than I'm just like lately. It seems like all the biopics I'm seeing do the and then in childhood, somebody said something to this person and that became the theme of their life. Dewey Cox needs to think about his entire life before he goes on stage. <laughs> For me, it's more the the Iron Lady uh, kind of thing. But yeah, Dewey Cox makes fun of it really well. And, and just that sense of like, and it's going to echo and come back over and over and over. You know, the, the trying to do the cradle to grave thing often doesn't work and feels like it sprawls. But I think here it does give you the space to see his evolution and to see him as the, the problem for me with the something happened in childhood and you're that person for the rest of your life approach is that it suggests that people aren't dynamic, really, you know, that you get older and maybe more powerful and more yourself, but you're the same sad child traumatized by a line for your entire life. And I think what's so fascinating here is because we see so many eras of his life, we see so many changes that he goes through and they all kind of build to where he ends up. But 
and, you know, they're all relevant to where he ends up. But they also show that, you know, people are, are dynamic and they do change over time. And at the same time, it's showing what doesn't change over time and the sort of the threads that connect the the past of his life to the present of his life. Like, the, I think this film makes very good use of flashback and sort of keeping it from being a, a complete cradle to grave. But like, like it, it uses flashback to show us the relevant moments, but it doesn't necessarily key in on those moments in like a narrative like a narrative way like this is how Malcolm got here it's more like filling in the blanks of like this is what effect this moment in his present is having on him based on what has happened in his past are you speaking specifically of the clan burning his home and then later the nation of Islam burning yes uh, well yeah. that, that that is definitely the, yeah. the most direct but but just sort of like the stuff with his his father and the school he went to sort of like like I'm thinking of um sort of the scene when he's in prison and Baines like basically asks him like have you ever known a a good white person or you know I can't remember the exact phrasing but in it it sort of like flashes back through all the white people in his past that those flashbacks and they aren't all flashbacks but most of them are have sort of like seeded that moment of like realization for him this is kind of the exception that proves the rule for me I mean I think Spike kind of justifies this form for all the reasons that Tasha and Genevieve have said I mean just there's an evolution that we're following here and 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 I think if you don't uh, include all of these sections of his life you know it's just not as rich of an experience I mean I think what you just need to do when you sit down to make a film about someone is to think about these sort of crystallizing moments these moments that that are really going to be revealing of, of who that person is and I think most of the time it ends up being a smaller stretch of, of their personal history, not a larger one, right? Um, but in this case, it's, it's everything. The whole thing, the, you know, you can't really, you really need to know how he got from A to Z and you need to fill in all those points in between. So I think it works extremely well here and, and almost never works <laughs> in other biopics. Yeah, it's been years since I've seen it, but it, but I think cl- it's closest to Gandhi in some ways in, tr- in, the, in the form. I mean, it, it, it is another big, like, sprawling young adulthood to, well, assassination in both their cases, unfortunately, but it also reminds me of Che a little bit after after it's Che's like, so unconventional che, though. Che is, but it is sort of one. like a, it's another big chunk of of a life that ended prematurely. Yeah, but I think structurally though, and the, the yeah. two parts, it's a little it's I'm a little totally, funkier. I'm totally wrong then. I'm but, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a little. I'm sorry you're wrong. It's a little funkier. Why does nobody ever? T- I so tell me they're sorry I'm wrong. I get I get told I'm wrong all the time. <laughs> you like being wrong. I know. I don't know. I don't know. Sure, have I ever been wrong? <laughs> so as Malcolm X, as, as he joins the Nation of Islam, and becomes a, a public figure for the Nation of Islam. The, the film has a lot of speeches, which is another thing that would kill most movies. And yet I think it works really well here, um, in, in part because they're all staged so differently. You know, it's kind of a check in on, on where he is, where his thinking is, but also the, just the way... Lee films the the growing crowds and, and the effect on the crowd and the way he tailors uh, different speeches to different audiences. I, I think it's all it all does work. It's not just there to capture famous moments. Like sometimes you'll see biopics and it's like you'll you'll hear a famous line and it just it's just so clunky. Uh, but here it works uh, for me. What what about yeah. everybody else? Oh yeah, like I mean, that's a a pretty big chunk in the middle of the film. There, it's like probably 30 40 minutes of just sort of back-to-back speeches as he becomes malcolm x you know i can't remember i think the first is the first scene like the street preacher scene where we see like him and the two other i, street, so. street I mean, preachers, he, one of whom 
is Al Sharpton, and right? the other one's Bobby Seal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and well, I think the, the the sort of the precursor is when he he has that sort of argument in prison with the with the uh, Catholic right, priest, right. Pope Christopher Plummer. But yeah, I think that is the first time we see the first, him. like post prison speech making. Yeah, and like that scene is just just has such energy and dynamism like with the overlapping sermons kind of happening and the way it moves in and out of the crowd and i feel like that energy just sort of catapults you into this string of of sort of evolving and growing speech making and uh i i found that whole section of the film like really really exciting and i think that's like that's like about the time that i was thinking like when i sat down to watch this i was like okay like maybe right around here is where i will pause this very long film and come back to it later and like no, like it was just I, I didn't even consider that once it started. I love that moment too because it, it it presents Harlem as like sort of this marketplace of ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all oh, like, yeah. they all got their pitches out and trying to attract customers and and and, and you know at least in his case in a very earnest way. I mean, he's a true believer, but but it is it is also a spiel. You have to draw in draw in the people to to and it, hear your message. I yeah. think you get the sense that all three of them are. I think there's a, a sense there that they're all literally, almost literally, since they've got ladders instead of soapboxes, but almost literally putting their soap boxes out mm-hmm. and you know advertising their brand and the the sense of engagement i guess with their audiences the sense of you know kind of shopping around for the philosophy that best fits them is kind of a literalization of the marketplace of ideas in a way that i think is really fun well it, just, it gives you just a sense of how much uh, oratory and charisma play a part and how ideas play a part too and and those two things together um can be persuasive to a lot of people i mean there's they're the rousing speeches. I mean, and it's also, of course, where Malcolm X's words and Denzel Washington's performance really persuade. I mean, they're, it's uh, what makes him kind of exciting is that you really are thinking about the ideas he's talking about, and also kind of understanding how someone with a point of view who that's so radical could could also be you know embraced and be feel very empowering to people who feel completely disempowered yeah i feel like one of the things that you get kind of out of the evolution of the speeches like one of them is just the the evolution from buttonholing individual churchgoers on their way out of church which was about the only scene in this movie i found really squirmy was just that idea of confronting people about beliefs that are important to them and laughing at them like he i mean he really is laughing at them in this scene uh you know with his you came out here expecting to find heaven out here but nope it's just earth because your religion is bull the evolution from that to a man who isn't shopping for individual followers and and has a vast room full of people hanging off of his every word feels very natural uh, and I think it feels better at the pacing that we get it here than it would if it was like a montage, like a musical montage, or if we cut directly from from A to Z uh, without seeing all of the intervention in between. But I think one of the things that's really important about hearing the text of these speeches is getting the sense over and over for, again, how much he respects and needs Elijah Muhammad and how like even as all of this jealousy and, and anger and resentment and distaste was building for him him within the church like he was still a true believer he still had that reverence for the man uh that nobody else was apparently within the church was giving him credit for and as we see the movement build behind him that ended his life seeing that like he himself has these blinkers on that it keeps coming up in his speeches i think is vitally important and uh to go back to one thing that you did say one of the many small touches i appreciated in the film was how 
that moment where he is confronting the churchgoers, the religion and their falsities of the religion comes back later, mm-hmm. right before he's assassinated, and someone comes up to him and says, you keep on doing what you're doing. You know, something like... Jesus loves you. Right, or, exactly. Or, 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 exactly. Or, or, he's able to kind of just... Jesus will protect you. Jesus, yes. Yeah, he's able to just kind of like process that moment and let it go and not feel he, like... He, he still does to... kind of make a face, like oh, a sort yeah. of like wry... <laughs> like, that's what I've got? Wry half Great. smile, yeah. But you wonder... But I think his reaction still, I think, is a little different. We talked about some of the supporting performances in this film, and, and you know, I think any discussion of that starts with Angela Bassett, who plays Betty Shabazz, and, and uh, is uh, quite good. I mean, I love Angela Bassett. She is one of my all-time favorite actresses. I, I get so excited when I see her in a film. She frustrates me a little here mm-hmm. because she... She's given that role, that completely unenviable role that women had for decades in films, which is why charismatic star of the movie that everybody is inclined to like, who is doing something difficult and dangerous, don't you stop doing all of this stuff and instead be home, stay home and, and be a father. And I feel like there's an almost subversive approach taken to it here because she's actually right. She's bringing all of these things to him. Like the the stay home and be a father thing doesn't really work. But in terms of like you're blind, they're profiting off of your work and resenting you and and undermining you. She's right about all of those things. And he refuses to see it and gets very angry. So I think narratively that sequence in particular is important. But the way it's played is this kind of cliched screaming fight is one of the few sequences in the film that just doesn't work for me because it feels more like Oscar bait than like a representation of something that happened in their relationship. It doesn't seem to fit with anything else we see. And it just it feels like Oscar clip moments to me. Well, I, I think that's complicated by the gender dynamics of the nation of Islam and like their, the whole portrayal of their relationship is and her portrayal of that character and how it changes is and the film like doesn't really i don't think do anything particularly interesting with that it's doing so much else i can't like fault it too much for not diving too deeply into how the nation of islam sees women but it does give it a, a little consideration through the betty character so i think like in the context of how we've seen her relationship to malcolm up to this point and what about their relationship to the nation of Islam and their fracturing relationship to the nation of Islam is informing their marriage. I I buy that explosive moment. I really like this character. and I think we are to see her as being completely on board with the lifestyle and the gender roles in which that are being dictated by the nation of, of Islam. But within that context, she does, you know, assert herself mm-hmm. when, when necessary, when it comes time to protect him, to make him see the light, to protect their family, to do she you know, tells to, him to eat. She tells him to eat, right? So she, I mean, so there's there's a level of assertiveness here that makes it her role as a, a homemaker or and mother of many children uh, more complicated than than it could be. Um, and uh, and I think it's a good, it's I think it's an interesting relationship. I think she pushes him. I don't think that you know, the film certainly implies that he doesn't have this necessary transformation with regard to Elijah Muhammad without her that he doesn't see the light if she's not if he isn't really insisting that he look at those headlines and that he talk to these women yeah. etc so I mean to me I appreciated all of that and I, of course uh, that Angela Bassett performance is great and there's an there's a real intimacy to their scenes together a quietness to some of them that's quite beautiful and and hard to pull off in a biopic of this scope 
and I mean, let's give it up. She she pulls off the anguish scream really well at the mm. end. <laughs> like, like I mean, yeah. like like obviously that's a a moment that is given to an actor, and they are going to make the most of it. But mm. she she does that. I mean, I enjoy. I feel like if you're going to have uh, Denzel Washington in this role, and you're going to make it about the character, the intensity of the character he's playing, him just like walking through life with this kind of whatever he commits to, he commits to fully. You kind of need somebody of her intensity if if you're going to have a match that's believable. Mm-hmm. And from her first introduction, you get the feeling that she has set her cap for him and that there's no way it's going to go any other way because she knows what she wants and she is Angela Bassett. And I mean, I a lot of her other sequences in this film, I really enjoy. And I, I just never get tired so of her seeing on screen. Yeah, their their first date is so charming too. And mm. Like how they how they're going to interact within the the rules of of the religion, and you know, knowing where you know how he used to be around women, and to see him act this way around her, you know, really pins her as an exceptional person in his life too. We've been going on a little bit. So we should probably wrap up pretty soon. I want to talk about a couple of other performances, and you know, we can talk about whoever you want to. But two I want to single out is Delroy Lindo, who was mm-hmm. kind of his breakthrough through film as sort of the terrifying and yet pitiable West Indian Archie, who's this Harlem crime boss who kind of uh, immerses uh, the future Malcolm X in a world of, of New York crime. And I, I think Spike Lee is really good in this movie as, as Shorty. And I, he, The knock on him was that, you know, he put himself in these movies and he's not that great of an actor. And maybe that's that's true in other instances, but I think he's very effective here. What, what is what is there? Yeah, I, mean, I mean, he's basically the first character we see, yeah. you, you know, like in doing that walk toward the camera, you <laughs> know, and like it, it does kind of feel like he is beckoning you into his film mm-hmm. to a certain extent and like you weren't expecting this or you know or at least i wasn't expecting that to be how this this movie started but my only kind of critique i guess of the shorty character has nothing to do with uh, spike lee's performance and just like how it the character resolves or doesn't you know and then like that's that's kind of true of a lot of, the, I think, the figures from earlier in, in Malcolm's life, like they get a very, very sort of perfunctory wrap up, if at all, because like that part of his life is. Yeah. He's, he's turned in one yeah. direction and it's they're like, a, OK, yeah. I'll see you. Know, Shorty's like, all right, see you later. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think it's like, I like pig's feet and white women too much. And, no, and, that's and, right. Like, he actually yeah. has, says it, says yeah. it right, right up. I mean, I think Spike Lee Howie's had a really good sense of what his talents were what his limits were and, and would cast himself he cast himself according to that and i think he does a very good job here Eh, i i still don't love him in his movies i think he's got a little bit of short guy syndrome there's kind of the outsized ego and it just seems like especially around this era there seemed to be a lot of short guy writer directors who had to put themselves in their in their own films and it wasn't always the best choice but did they put themselves getting spun around on a dance floor by a large <laughs> and, then, and then thrown at the camera actually that that shot where he slides under her legs and like right up into the camera and looks into the camera was one of the main reasons like when i saw this in 92 i was just like nope oh no i'm not into this moment the whole okay one of one of the few things that uh i didn't care for in this movie i thought that initial dance scene went on way too long oh no that's the best i was about to talk about how great that scene was Uh, well we had to disagree about something and there it is we we, we can save it for connections to me it it goes on a really long time and the fact that we've got the broken record of that lady screaming shorty 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 throughout the entire thing is just an annoying disaster so disaster i'm not a huge 
huge fan of uh, Spike Lee in this film. Delroy Lindo's amazing. Mm. Um, I mean, he's both amazing in those early scenes where he's just, he comes across as the, the epitome of cool and sophisticated and in control. And then that final scene mm. with him is both so heartbreaking and so well acted. The sheer number of hey, it's that guy roles in this uh, movie <laughs> is amazing. And like his whole little crew of people, uh, they're all really good. But he's a real standout. And for me, Albert Hall as Baines is uh, just a tremendous, mm. tremendous performance. Like it, the period where he comes into uh, Malcolm's life in prison and just like he he knows the score. He knows what he believes and he brings that intensity in during a period where uh, Malcolm is not entirely sure who he is and not is not sure what he wants to do with his life. And it's so easy to see him looking at that character and thinking, I want what you have. Like, I want that conviction, that certitude. I want that confidence you have, but I also want the power that gives you that confidence. And then watching that character evolve in parallel to Malcolm X, I think is fascinating. And like the last scenes where you see him, oof, that's just the emotional impact that he brings into it. He's so good. He's really good. He's really good. And well, also Michael Imperioli. Can we talk about that performance <laughs> briefly? Okay. Giancarlo Esposito. Yeah, Esposito. All, kinds of, all kinds of shooter cameos in this, too. The yeah. people pop up oh, and of course, Nelson Mandela. <laughs> right. uh, Nelson Man- I, I got really emotional at the Nelson Mandela yeah. scene. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we could we could keep talking, and I, I'm sure we'll be talking about Malcolm X plenty in the next episode. We'll wrap that up for now. Um, but Wendell Pierce. And Roger Guinevere Smith. I know, I know. Let's just read the cast uh, list. I'll just fade Craig out Lassan as we read the cast of, uh, list. Of, uh, of Body Double is, is in this film. I didn't recognize Karen Allen either. Oh, come on. Um, oh, seriously? Wow. He's the one. To, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, like I said, we could go on. But for now, we'll take a break and be right back with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Here's one inspired by a recent episode, albeit one closer to the anything else in the world of film and of the spectrum. Genevieve, this is about you and me. So why don't you read the letter? <laughs> okay. Carl from Massachusetts writes, I recently enjoyed the Mission Impossible episodes where a big part of the discussion is how Tasha, despite being a film critic, has somehow managed to only sort of like a movie that everyone else loves. Is that not a film <laughs> critic thing? I think that's a really common film critic thing. He continues, now it can't be that surprising that a fifth sequel to a 20-year-old action movie would garner praise from only three quarters of the Next Picture Show crew. I'd imagine every critic knows that there is a time when he or she must stand up for an unpopular opinion. This has fallen to Tasha a few times lately. Lately? <laughs> a few? <laughs> he mu- Carl must be a newer listener. <laughs> and we've heard Scott do it back during the torture porn era. But something's missing. Keith, Genevieve, it's time to alienate your co-hosts. What cinematic hill would you be willing to die on? I've been thinking about this all day. I'm not sure I have a great answer, but I'll let you go first. I know you <laughs> wow. do, Genevieve. But... Oh, oh I, I actually did not have a great answer going into this, so I, I turned to data. I turned to the Metacritic and Rotten Tomatoes author pages for me to see where my opinion diverged from the consensus most strongly. Because like I, I had a really hard time thinking of like a particular like one single film that I w- w- will like go to the mat for. I'm just like not a super confrontational, argumentative person. Like I don't have that part of the film critic. What? <laughs> I, what's that like? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, you know, if if you like something, I don't, or vice versa. I'm I'm inclined to be like. 
okay, cool. You know, <laughs> I very live and let live. So I'm, I'm like that too. I get it. I get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. So, so I, so I had to turn to uh, this strategy to kind of like figure out what my hill I would die on is. Again, I don't really have like a specific answer, but in looking at this, I did find some sort of trends. Some of the movies, uh, recent movies where I diverged from consensus considerably uh, are the films About Time, The Age of Adeline, and Beyond the Lights, all of which makes me think I have a higher tolerance for melodrama and sincerity in my film than a lot of critics do. Um, also, Winter's Tale is a part of that trend, but mm. I only gave that two stars. But apparently that was like two stars too many for, for other critics. <laughs> um, I definitely know people that would have given that negative 20 stars. Yeah. That was an option. Yeah. Um, I also tend to enjoy DreamWorks's non-How to Train Your dragon films more than the average critic uh in particular both turbo and home uh which i rated significantly higher than most i think because they're both sort of unexpected twists on well-trod genres uh the underdog sports movie in the case of turbo and the road trip buddy comedy in the case of home so i think i kind of like maybe i'm drawn to things that give me something familiar in a slightly unfamiliar context and then sort of going in the opposite direction, I've disproportionately disliked the majority of the live-action Disney retreads, uh, notably Cinderella, which I hated, and especially Beauty and the Beast, mm. which I really hated. It took me like several tries to get through that movie. It came up as Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> but so I, I think like maybe that distaste is sort of like the flip side of the two things I just mentioned, where like those films are born out of pure cynicism in my opinion so they're the opposite of sincere and they're giving me something familiar but in not enough of an unfamiliar context i i remain unalienated i think you were right about all of these things <laughs> home is a yeah. very charming movie turbo which we're all contractually obligated to love is uh <laughs> like delightfully weird all of those Disney live action films can go die in a fire, yeah. but especially Cinderella. Well, Cinderella oh, can die in no, two fires. No, but especially Beauty and the Beast. Uh, uh, like what, are the, what is even the point of that movie existing? Maybe maybe I've just been hanging out with you guys for too long. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say the exception there is Jungle Book. Jungle Book's good. Jungle Book is... Oh. No, like, no, I did not oh, like no, Jungle there Book. You go. Jungle there you go. I reviewed that All one right. slightly more positively because I felt it was the first one to actually try to tell a story. That the animated version didn't tell. Mm. So I think it's better, but it's still not good. Yeah. Jimmy, there's this film from the 80s that I really love and think <laughs> is a total masterpiece called Ghostbusters. Oh, no, we, we agreed we're, clo- we're closing the book. Oh, that. come on. No, that's a, that's a, that's a, and, and, that's, that's, that's going to be as a firebrand. I'll, I'll just say, I'll just say, if you have not listened to our Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters episodes from a couple years ago, uh, you can you can go back there and kind of hear about the history of another alienating opinion of go. mine. I, just had to I feel like up. that was not a hill that you wanted to die on so much as a hill that you kind of wandered it, up it was, and then like people a, started like... It was, trying to stab yeah, you. Or it was like a little molehill that people like thought it, I was on top of yeah, a mountain. It was, it, was yeah. the, it was the original Logan is just okay <laughs> a hill to die on. Uh, I, so data, you got me thinking about data. I remember the, low many years ago, there was some sort of, I think it was in Slate or something where they like, crunched the numbers. That's what made me think of this. Well, define, yeah, well, yeah. The, define who the critic who was most aligned with the critical consensus and yeah. it was me. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which I don't, I don't try to like be the critical consensus, wow. but um, so but that's back when I used to review films. I haven't reviewed a film since April. Hello, I'm from Hire. Yeah, <laughs> you can reach me through various means. Anyway, um, uh, there's the hills I'm willing to die on. It's kind of vaguely, 
I get my backup about sweeping generalizations about filmmakers in particular, because uh, I kept thinking about how angry people are were made by AI, which is one of my favorite films of, of this century. And they're angry about it for wrongheaded reasons, specifically the, the sentimental ending, which I think is one of the bleakest endings I've seen in a movie ever. But, but, but they come, I think people come into it with this notion of who Spielberg is and the kind of movies he makes. And I think the whole idea of Spielberg being overly sentimental, apart from some cases, I'm never going to watch Hook again, uh, is, is way off base. The same way with, you know, the same with thinking about Chaplin. I, I don't, you know, you find that it's sort of there's one element of a filmmaker to latch on to, and you can just kind of dismiss the whole thing. I mean, I, I feel like it kind of happens with Eastwood now because he's, he's been sort of foolishly political in public. Um, and people are somewhat dismissive of his films because of that, where I find even he's one of those filmmakers. Where I find like even his weaker films, like his most recent, the 1517 to Paris is, is, Really a fascinating yeah. uh, failure. <laughs> in, yeah, you in many you ways. did not see any film like that film last year, for sure. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it stands out. There's, there is nothing, nothing else like it. But I don't even know if to answer the question. But I, I just really, I think people who make easy summaries of whole filmmakers and whole careers and whole trends in filmmaking too, like you know, dismissal of the rom com or the musical, all of which things I've run into. The, the hill I'm willing to die on is is that you know these sort of broad statements are almost always wrong. There are so many counterexamples they're not even worth making the point to begin with. So that's, is that an answer? Is that an answer? I don't know. I'm just talking of you as a, a die on a hill, wave the banners type. I, I see you as the the rational adult that yeah. finds the, <laughs> like finds the intelligence in things that other people like dismiss without thought basically. Yeah. And who, like I think of you as kind of the person that, that tries to find the compromise between people, the peacemaker. Yeah. So as opposed to the, you know, this sucks and we should get rid of it. You're wrong. I, mean, I never like, I mean, I never think an opinion is, well, some opinions are wrong, but I mostly don't <laughs> think opinions are wrong. And okay. How about this? Jersey girl is Kevin Smith's best film. We'll just leave it That's at a that. pretty good one. Uh, yeah, that is go. a pretty good one. Yeah. Wow. I was about to say, I was, I was about it's, to, I was about it's to only okay. pretty solid, pretty criticize you both for really not, I was you got to bring the heat here. This is going to go, the hill you're willing to die on. Where's the, where's yeah. the passion? Well, let, let me, let me ask you this, Keith, because I'm really curious about it. Like, I know that, that Scott and I tending towards the extremes of opinion, like both have films that it just like angries up our blood super bad that they exist in the world. Not, not that's a bad film, but like, how dare they? Can we please burn down everybody involved in that movie? Is there any film that you hate that much? I mean, yeah, give me, give me, I'm on the spot. So like nothing comes to mind immediately. Like, so there ought to be something that's just sort of like my. Keith is not fueled by hatred the way you two are. Yeah, my, my, <laughs> it doesn't empower you. No, my, my like bet noir, I'll leave the room if it's, if it's on kind of thing. I'm, Hate will make you have, strong. I don't have, what's, what, what's yours? What's yours? There have been any number of them over the years, but uh, for whatever reason, the one that I always go back to and put on the spot for that is Sydney White, which is a completely forgettable uh, Snow White retelling that's just crude and dumb and uh, incoherent and completely insulting to the audience. The, it's the insulting to the audience. It's the this was made for no reason other than to make money. And it's cynical and lazy. Like that's the formula that tends to make me angry in movies. Yeah, I think the two movies I, I would have walked out on 
if I weren't there for professional obligation are Kung Pao Enter the Fist, which is just dumb. <laughs> it's just uh-huh. dumb. I mean, I'm not I'm not an eight year old boy. I'm not. It's not. I'm, that's more maybe on me, not the film. Uh, there's a film called um, Tom Cats, which was sort of like that <laughs> awful period when there was there's all these sort of Gregory fairly, Poirier, yeah, Poirier's yeah, Tom yeah, Cats. yeah, yeah, yeah. These sort of Fairly Brothers inspired gross out comedies. We're just oh, you know bad. they don't get what makes the Fairly Brothers work, and it's sort of gre- you know leering and gross and sexist and and you know pass. You know I know you're the, the world's biggest torture porn. Fan, <laughs> but there was there was a period when that and I, I think what you're talking about is sort of the more refined connoisseur, right? Of course, torture yes. well, when that uh, extreme horror is the term, yeah, yeah, yeah. When that sensibility like, went, went mainstream, and there's a, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre prequel, like the second prequel, one of those, those you know, when they uh, right. re, or whatever, that Michael Bay's company, yeah, Michael Bay's yeah. Platinum Dunes, and and it's just you know really just tough to sit through because it's, there's no creativity. It really is just what horrible things can you do to the human body for no particular end with no particular thematic engagement uh, or or you know skill to to make up for it so you know that kind of stuff makes me mad makes me mad <laughs> all right can you hear how mad, mad as hell yeah i love it fucking that's not crazy <laughs> you have it here that 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 thing makes uh keith mad as heck and he doesn't want to take too much more of it if possible <laughs> all right well that's that's all the feedback we're going to do for this episode but please be in touch we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net we may feature your response on a future episode or post it on facebook for discussion That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Black Klansman, the latest Spike Lee joint. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, so you always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be attempting to develop the charisma and willpower to make thousands of protesters disperse with a single hand gesture. But I know